Welcome to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week, I speak to people who fund and support social innovation in different ways. Grant providers, impact investors of various kinds, angel investors, foundations, family offices and more. They talk frankly about how they work, how they make investment, grant and funding decisions, what they will invest in or support and what they cannot. They talk about the pros and cons of different sources of funding, share lessons and insights, and provide invaluable advice for any social entrepreneur or innovator looking to build and finance a sustainable social business. Most of our money we invest through funds. Some of those funds are focused on social entrepreneurs. Um, some of them are focused on small businesses. Uh, some of them are, are focused on large public companies. And we think that there's a role for all of them to play. Our direct investing um, is in, in nonprofit organizations typically, and nonprofits who tend to be mid sized organizations. It's being very clear that having nonprofit organizations and the social sector, in foundations and philanthropy, um, be part of a fantasy that it can be an ever-expanding cleanup crew for a private sector that is not creating value for most of the people in the, in the country. Um, I, I think basically standing up and saying that cannot stand. We can't have that world. Uh, we can't have a world where one side is the cleanup crew and the other side gets to do whatever the heck it wants as long as it makes a lot of money. I'm very pleased today to introduce Clara Miller. Clara is president of the Heron Foundation, a U.S. foundation that helps people and communities help themselves out of poverty. Heron began as a grant maker 25 years ago. Over time, Heron aligned an increasing portion of its assets to mission-related investment. In 2011, it made the decision to invest all its endowment in mission-related investment, which it achieved at the end of last year under Miller's leadership. Prior to assuming the foundation's presidency, Miller was president and CEO of the non-profit finance fund, which she founded and ran from 1984 through 2010. She's won numerous awards for her work. In 2015, Miller and Heron were named Investor of the Year by Institutional Investor Magazine in the category of small foundations. Thank you very much, Clara, for taking the time to speak to financing social entrepreneurs today. Well, I'm delighted to be here. So I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about the pioneering work that you're doing in Heron, at the Heron Foundation. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just wondering, maybe a good place to start, if you can talk a little bit about the scope of, of Heron Foundation's work and your role. Sure. Um, so the Heron Foundation is a U.S. private foundation. Uh, for those not familiar with, with what that form is, it's typically a large endowment or a very generous con contribution by a wealthy individual that is managed um, separately from, for, um, and conventionally and uh, uh, an amount uh, equal to about 5% per year is provided in grants over time. So um, Heron is a little different from that. We've, we've 
about a $300 million foundation. Our mission is to help people and communities help themselves out of poverty. And the way we look at it is that the entire corpus of our foundation is focused on our mission. Um, so so we, we look broadly at opportunities for anti-poverty work, for helping uh, helping make sure that corporations are doing things that are positive for the people we we care about um, it, it, Heron long before I came to Heron which was about six years ago Heron was a pioneer in this impact investing and essentially using a larger proportion of its assets for mission as well as as opposed to um, a smaller proportion and um, when I came in in uh, 2011, the big change was to say, well, we're at 40% of our endowment uh, dedicated to mission. Why are we stopping there? You know, the world is, if anything, uh, there's more poverty than when we started, and there's more income inequality. So how can we put every dollar to work for mission? Uh, and so that's been the journey of the last five years. I'm the president of, of this foundation, um, and that's really been my remit, is to try to make that happen. Great. A very pioneering move, and I'd love to talk to you about that in more detail in a moment. But I also want to talk to you about Heron's mission. You talk about an ambition to alleviate poverty. That's a tremendous ambition, also a very large one. How do you decide where to focus? This is, a, this is as you can tell, a, a mission as big as all outdoors. Um, and we're a $300 million foundation, which, you know, it, in some ways it seems like a lot of money, but um, it's actually a, a kind of a rounding error on a rounding error on a rounding error of one day in the U.S. or in the New York City economy, for that matter. So how do we take this $300 million and make it influential outside our walls? Um, how do we help make it connect people who are left out of the economy to the mainstream economy? How do we assure people that they can find work, which is a huge challenge these days? And from our point of view, one way that people get out of poverty is to have decent uh, work uh, for, for living wages. Um, and so our answer really was to invest up and down the economy, whether it's in a nonprofit or a small, uh, a small business or whether it's in a public company, to invest with a consciousness of how will this have a positive impact on our, our world and the people we want to, to help. Right, right. And how do how do the transactions take place? How do uh, social entrepreneurs interact with the fund? How do you find investments, and how does that all happen? Okay, so so um, one thing to understand about Heron is we have a tremendously broad investment market basket, as it were. Uh, we most of our money we invest through funds. Some of those funds are focused on social entrepreneurs. Um, some of them are focused on small businesses. Uh, some of them are are focused on large public companies, and we think that there's a role for all of them to play. Our direct investing um, is in in nonprofit organizations typically and nonprofits who tend to be mid-sized organizations 
um, many of them, if not all of them, could be classified as being social entrepreneurs. But none of them are the classic startups because we made the determination that be, our, the people we want to help, uh, the people we want to f help find employment, have to have a reliable business to, to, uh, to be, be employed by, for example. And that that's more likely to exist in a in an organization that has a track record of uh, success and a strong management team and a variety of other things. So we we are looking for organizations that are at that very important phase where they're they've gotten to a certain amount of scale and now they have a critical opportunity to grow and do more in the economy. Um, and and we invest in those kinds of organizations, whether it's direct debt or whether it's for, in the nonprofit sector um, with what we've called philanthropic equity or enterprise capital. Because we see our, our role as a, a mid-stage mid growth, growth stage investor. Right. So how many applications would you get? Or, do you find them? Do they find you? Can you just we, we, we find them. I mean, we, it's a little bit we we don't want to completely close ourselves off from opportunities. But as you can imagine, there's a tremendously strong demand for what what we have. And uh, we we don't have that much bandwidth. We're not that large. Um, and so we have to be quite careful about, you know, saying y'all come because we'll spend all day talking to delightful organizations that are probably not going to be a fit for us. Um, so so uh, the way it works is we typically invite organizations to come in and have a conversation with us. Um, we like to meet people. We like to hear about what they're doing. Uh, but unless they've really got uh, an invitation from us, uh, it, we probably won't won't take an application from them. Although they're they're everybody's completely entitled to send to send us something, and we try to to make a very quick response, either yay or nay, to to everything that comes in the door. Um, so we don't have really a very formalized application process in the way that some foundations do. Um, it's much more an iterative and reiterative conversation. Right. That's interesting. What would you say then are the main things that you're looking for in the organizations you support? It's kind of interesting. I mean, most foundations, I, I would say, are uh, have program silos. They're looking for either education or they're looking for health or some version of that, we are looking for organizations that make a difference to people and communities uh, who are left out of the economy. And, we, and, and we're interested in jobs and employment as well because we think they go hand in hand. Um, but beyond that, we, we aren't so interested in a specific program area. We're just interested in that, that kind of impact on the people we care about. Yes. Uh, yeah. so, so we ask questions that are much more around things like, are you, are you prepared to absorb capital and use it well? So there are things like, you know, what is the, what is the reliable revenue our capital will help you attract? Yes. Uh, 
which is a very different kind of question than there used to being answered, being asked. Um, yes, it, yes. And, and, and how do you tend to structure them? Is it, uh, I, I, I guess, debt, equity? Have you any sense of the different proportions? <clears throat> so in, in, in the situations where we're talking about what, what we call enterprise capital or philanthropic equity, um, it's essentially for a nonprofit, it's a growth stage opportunity uh, when in a nonprofit context, there's no ownership of nonprofits. Yes. So it's very hard to have an equivalent of equity. Yes. This is meant to be an equivalent of the equity a for-profit gets if it's at the point where it can make a kind of a leap. Yes. Um, and we are among other investors. So we typically try to get others into the, into the group, yes. uh, partly because our our, our typical investment, we used to have an average grant size of $75,000. Uh, our average grant size now is about a million and a half dollars. And it's typically in a total campaign of $3 million to $30 million. So that would be equity-like uh, capital in the form of grants that we need to be able to see a financial return even though the return is ceded to the nonprofit and we don't take an ownership share in the way that a typical for-profit would right um, right when you say ceded to the uh, nonprofit what's that mean it means that we want to be able to see that financial positive we want to be able to see the deficits you know in, in a way what you can you can refer to the role of capital in a growth situation is paying the deficits on the way to a uh, sustainable business model where you go, you know, you start earning enough income so you don't need to burn capital anymore. Um, and that, that that income is reliable. Yes. So once they go into positive territory, yes. you know, and, you know, in, in a typical private equity situation, you might be able to sell your stake because somebody else wants to be able to benefit from uh, dividends and so on on shares. Um, we don't do that. We, we just seed that potential financial return to the organization. Right, right. So it, you, you wouldn't have expectations of financial returns? No. You know, and we, we haven't. Yeah. I mean, people have said, well, you could use warrants and you, there are various ways you could get at that. Um, we, would, we don't do that. We do that if we are lending directly to a nonprofit or a social enterprise. But that would be in a situation where the revenue is much more reliable and predictable. Yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. It, 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 you mentioned at the beginning, uh, Clara, that, that, that uh, Heron had been a pioneer in, in the area of impact investment. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a quite a broad term, isn't it? What, what, what is, what, 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 can you talk a little bit about what impact investment means and what it means at Heron? Yes, I, this is a, this is, is a, you know, it's a, it's a big family, the impact investment yes. family, and there are a lot of, we, yes. we don't always agree on everything, <laughs> but Heron uh, has the broad, I think a very broad view of what uh, impact investment is and what, um, you know, we, we kid around and we say, well, you know, it, it, folks ask me, um, well, tell me, do other foundations do impact investing? 
and I almost always say, yeah, all of them do, except they don't know whether the impact is positive or negative. Um, and so from the point of view of, of Heron, we think that public companies have impact. They have a net positive or negative impact on the world based on how they do business. And as a as a philanthropic investor, we have to look up and down the different kinds of enterprises, uh, up and down the economy, um, starting from uh, for-profit for public companies, which have a tremendous impact on the world. And, and basically, we think we have to both stanch the flow of problems as well as solve problems on the other end of the spectrum. So we'll go from small not-for-profit or for-profits on one end, you know, problem-solving, very exciting, high growth, etc., all the way to big public companies who, with their policies, are employing far more of the kinds of people that we want to be able to reconnect to the economy than small enterprises can this year. Um, so it's, you know, we, we take a very broad uh, view of what impact investing can be and what uh, what social enterprises can be. Uh, we do, you know, one thing I should say is that uh, unlike some investors, we take the enterprise view. We we need to see right through our asset classes in our investment portfolio, all the way down to the level. Uh, where an enterprise actually has an impact, and that would be in its regular operations. Uh, so we we take the uh, the enterprise view of our portfolio. Right, that's very interesting, and I'm not sure it's something that a uh, a lot of foundations do um, for various reasons. And maybe we can touch on that. Um, now, just to be clear, you what investments do you expect to make returns from, or how do you make returns? Um, we make returns from virtually every other type of investment but grants. I mean, we make uh, financial returns that are that we share in from whether it's uh, um, uh, private equity funds, uh, which are essentially they are impact private equity funds that are interested that where the the manager is interested in jobs, is interested in the environment, a variety of broad social issues. Um, bond funds, uh, where you can actually see all the way down to the enterprise level in the bonds you own. And it might be a corporate bond for, a, let's say, a Toyota factory on, on, in Texas. It might be a, a government bond where green infrastructure is being built and it helps connect various parts of a community that is not connected. Um, there's a whole uh, range, but in each instance, we see all the way to where uh, the funds that are in that investment are actually having an impact on the ground. Right, right. That's interesting. Now, in, in the world you're talking about, as you say, the very broad definition of impact, I guess some some kinds of impact are, uh, you can point to some kinds of social impact, which have or which are stronger. Um, and other, you know, as you say, uh, employment in itself is a, is a social good, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. Do you distinguish between different categories of, of uh, impact in that sense? 
We we don't. We have moved away from the notion that there's either social or financial, and you kind of have to trade one against the other. Uh, we think that sometimes that's the case, and sometimes it's not, and we're not entirely sure. We think that basically uh, companies that have a good social impact have a long-term positive future in in most cases if they're well-managed financially as well. And if they're not well-managed financially, then they probably don't have a good social impact in the long run. So so we don't think it's a either-or. We think it's a both-and. Um, and and therefore, the, the whole idea of social first or uh, financial first are a little bit... Um, I guess tarnished for us. We we think that there's a a better and bigger way to think about uh, business. Great. Can you talk about the background to the decision to merge the two investment programs at Heron, Mission and Conventional, and how that's working at Heron today? Yeah. Well, we we made the decision to go to one hundred percent. Um, after we we had review, we did a review, of course, when I came as president, and um, it was pretty clear to us that if our mission was to help people and communities help themselves out of poverty, the events following the financial crash in two thousand eight, um, which resulted because of the way the banks were lending to the people we wanted to help. Um, in the largest stripping of assets from the poor in American history. And that didn't happen on the margin. That happened in the mainstream. So if we weren't participating fully in leveraging and in being part of and being an actor, an active participant in the mainstream economy from a mission perspective, uh, we weren't getting at root causes. And so we then and there kind of said, well, we don't really have any choice given our mission and given the nature of the challenge that we have here in the States of a mature economy, which is now shedding people as opposed to a, 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 a less mature economy that's taking people up uh, the ladder. Um, and so it's that's what we were solving for. And like most of our allies in the field, we had been focused on essentially asset acquisition, asset-based, you know, access to assets of, of various types. So, um, and the idea was, you know, if a, if a family could get access to credit and buy a house, that was a really good path to wealth. If a person could get access to training and get a job, then that was a good uh, path to to uh, improve oneself and move up the ladder. And we had to admit that we were providing access to something that didn't exist, which was reliable work for adequate pay. Uh, and that if we were going to be in, <laughs> if we were going to have a snowball's chance, we had to not only be providing 100% of, of what we had uh, financially, but also kind of human capital and, and so on. And we had, to be, we had to try to be influential outside our walls because we could create a perfect little universe inside Heron and be doing all the right things, but have absolutely no impact on the larger economy. 
Right. Uh, so that was that was the root of of making that decision. And when did you get to a hundred percent? We got to a hundred percent December of twenty sixteen. Right. <laughs> so right. we're there. Right. Now this has been a journey, and I guess a, in in many ways experimental, um, in a sense that you're learning as you go. And uh, I know that you've had uh, this journey within the organisation and uh, breaking down silos and things. What's your sense? And it's still early days, I guess. How how would you assess the the success of that? Or and and, and underlying that, I suppose, what would you look at to see whether that was the right decision or not, or a good decision, or how good a decision, if, if you yeah. get what I mean? Um, well, I think that uh, one thing is for, for sure, just from an operational and cultural point of view, it's a big change uh, when a culture like the foundation culture is so split between this is where you, you do good over here and you fight the battles of the capital markets over there, and they are fundamentally incompatible to it. And, you know, just leave us alone. We've got to make our 5% real over here and just leave us alone. Don't talk about money. We're making grants over there. You know, those are two very strong cultures and they're very strong, very smart people on both who have, who have essentially embraced that that division is was somehow handed down in you know in the in the stone tablets at the beginning at the birth of the private foundation, and that it's an immutable fundamentalist law of of our world. We reject that. Um, we think, in fact, there's a heck of a lot more to be gained from having those two sides of the organization work. In, 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 you know, kind of in together uh, as partners um, and have had all sorts of very uh, exciting and interesting positives from that, that experience. And I think that our friends in other foundations are finding that as well. Uh, that said, it's a big culture change. And just remembering that you, you know, you need to think outside your immediate context and and um, try to um, keep from going into the standard we are a grant-making bureaucracy uh, and we're here to actually get grants out the door as our main job. It's very hard to resist that the, the kind of comfort of those patterns. Um, so that's been a, that has been a journey. And then as to your question, how do we d decide whether it's been successful or not? Um, I, I can say that I, I feel good about the impact we're having on the field. I think the foundation community is flexing its investment muscles here in the States more and more. And there's some very creative and interesting and much larger players like the Ford Foundation who are coming in uh, and that, to me, means that uh, foundations are thinking of their role much more holistically and broadly. Um, and, and that's a good thing. What's at stake here in the sense that, um, you know, you talked about the way foundations are structured and have been and so forth. And, 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 and I guess you could talk about that. But more generally in terms of dealing with social problems and uh, 
financing social change and getting uh, foundations and philanthropists to, uh, to move more in this direction? Yeah, I, well, I think it's, um, it's being very clear that having nonprofit organizations and the social sector in foundations and philanthropy um, be part of a fantasy that it can be an ever-expanding cleanup crew for a private sector that is not creating value for most of the people in the, in the country. Um, I, I think basically standing up and saying that cannot stand. We can't have that world. Uh, we can't have a world where one side is the cleanup crew and the other side gets to do whatever the heck it wants as long as it makes a lot of money. And uh, basically being the change that we need in society as a whole is a, at least a first step. Uh, if we act like business as usual will get us where we want to go, we're never going to get there. And we can't get there without everybody on board, given the, the wicked problems we have, the, the pervasiveness of them, and the urgency. You know, the idea that climate change or, you know, security, international security, global security, um, many of the problems we face today, we just can't do it without everybody on board. And that includes big public companies. That includes folks up and down the economy. Yes, absolutely. And I guess institutional investors as well and pension funds, uh, again, they uh, the, the mass of, of, of money, uh, trillions that are in, invested through these institutions, clearly they have a major responsibility as well to to make sure that the, you know, the corporations or the stewardship is 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 fair and equitable. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for bringing them up. I think that they are a great ally for foundations and uh, and have proven to be, um, are beginning to say to themselves, yes, we have got to do this. We are stewards of people's funds. Uh, and those people are teachers and police officers and and workers, you know, and and they don't want their money to be going to things that they they feel are socially social ills. And, and beyond that, I think um, it's kind of a it's I, I, this is a sort of a whimsical way of putting it, but it's a it's a revolution in capital. All of those big, the, the Black Rocks of the world or the pension funds or the big mutual funds, they're all mainly owned by small investors. Um, and so this is a real opportunity for people to say, we want a different world. And the way our money is invested is something that we can almost vote with to some extent for that better world. And do you see that change happening? I think, I think it's starting to happen. I think that uh, pension funds uh, are, are at least being very verbal about the way they see their responsibilities. I think consumers are being clear about what their expectations are for the companies they own and buy from. Um, so, so I th and I think in particular, the the 
younger generation, thank heavens for them, <laughs> the millennials are um, basically saying, hey guys, you know, we need to, to do, we need to change the world and we need to do it quickly. And we don't want to be associated with companies that are out of control and doing things that are bad for my future. Yes, yeah, huge intergenerational questions there. Now, it looks at the moment that an increasing number of foundations are, to a lesser or greater degree, interested in mission-related investing. What lessons do you have for others on this journey? Um, I, think, I think the first step, um, interestingly, it's very simple. It's to know what you own. Uh, it's it's very easy to say, well, we own, you know, we own some bond funds and we own some mutual stock funds and we own some real estate investment trusts, but have no idea what is underneath those assets. And we've had a couple of good conversations with with relatively small foundations who have said, well, we want to, we're kind of interested in this, but our trustees really don't know what to do, and we're a social justice organization, and we always say, well, just get your trustees or ask your financial advisor, what is what do you own? What do you actually own uh, shares in? And in one of those instances, the thing they found first was, well, they own some fairly large stakes in predatory lenders. They own some pretty large stakes in private prison um, companies. And it's pretty easy to argue that those things are not contributing to a social justice mission um, of the type that I think those trustees would want to be associated with. So then, then you don't really need to preach. Um, it, it starts being self-evident how you have to start moving your money. Uh, so that, I think that has been a, a positive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, when you come to making the investments, what way does it differ if it's a program-related investment or a mission-related investment? Well, you know, I think that what what happens a lot of times with the big foundations is that they, that, that compliance becomes an overarching uh, kind of strategic imperative, if you will. Uh, and those, the idea of a program-related investment or a mission-related investment is relevant only to tax compliance for for philanthropic um, private foundations, really. Uh, so we, we don't, it's not that we don't care, we comply with the law, but for us it's not a major driving strategic imperative. We do yes. it yes. by, you know, the way any business would do it, by saying, well, are we still in compliance? And if we aren't, let's pay attention to that. Yes. But we don't start out saying, okay, we're going to just cut off MRIs from PRIs, from grants, from regular investments, because we don't think, we think that's an artificial distinction. Yes. What we want to do is to invest 
those assets to their highest and best mission uh, use and to understand how we then <laughs> talk to the IRS about them. Yes, absolutely. From a social enterprise perspective, does it matter? I suppose in the sense that if it's a grant, they it's, it's clear, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a non-profit, for example, or that, you know, they're not going to be expected to, you know, uh, in most cases, repay the grant. And presumably the uh, profit expectations um, are, would differ or, or the rates of return between a, a mission-related investment, a program-related investment. Can you talk a little bit about that, just at least from the perspective of the kinds of rates of returns that, that you know, uh, a social enterprise uh, need to think about when they would be approaching uh, an investor? Um, and how, how, well, how, how well understood do you think that is from, from the perspective of the social entrepreneur? Yeah, I think that there's, uh, there's a wide range of... of um, kind of financial knowledge and uh, competency, and it doesn't matter if it's a social entrepreneur or an anti-social entrepreneur, <laughs> regular old little business, um, or a big public company. There's you know there's good and bad managers and good and bad financial managers in all of them. Um, we make we are very clear about our financial role and. We, while we make grants, and it's easier for people to understand when you talk about grants, we really say to ourselves, is this grant, are we spending it? In other words, is it going to be revenue to the organization we are providing it to, whether it's we're spending it on um, um, operating support for an organization or whether we're spending it on... Um, buying a, a, a report from that organization, some sort of contract, or is it capital? Is it actual, you know, what I was talking about before, this philanthropic equity or enterprise capital? Um, that's the important distinction. Is it, and then the, the, the other one would be, is it, is it a loan or is it an equity investment? Um, and whether it's a PRI or an MRI, it really has to do with what your intention is. Are you intending to make money with this investment or are you not intending to make money with this investment? What happens after that is entirely, um, it, it's not always, you know, it's not always um, random, but it can be a surprise either way. So we all know that you can start out with the intention of making money and not make money. And you can start out with the intention of making money some or not making money sometimes and surprise yourself by making money. And I think that that's um, that's where the whole regulatory uh, and return question starts breaking down. People who are making PRIs often say, OK, there's a reason to do a long term low interest loan for this. Uh, let's say it's a housing project because it'll actually lower the cost of the housing so it's affordable, for example. Or there's a reason to make this, uh, to, to um, you know, price this loan below market because they couldn't get this project done without that pricing. Um, but the, the lion's share of organizations um, can actually pay uh, interest on money 
Um, and the important thing is usually not the the difference between a 2% or a 3% or a 4%, especially if it's relatively short-term money. The difference is, can you pay back the 100% of principal on that money? <laughs> and yes. the, the interest rate is usually uh, not as important. The term can be more important than interest rate. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, elasticity in that math problem, in that box that has to do with affordability and return. Right, right. Yes, yes. Now, um, uh, finally, um, just what, interested in, in another area, which I know that uh, Heron's interested in and uh, be interested in getting your view. And that is, I guess, I suppose, the ecosystem um, itself. Uh, for impact investment, um, I mean, capacity building or new kinds of organizations or uh, institutions to help this uh, field develop. It's a very early stage of development. I'm just wondering what what you think, uh, your assessment of how that's evolving and uh, what you think, what, what you'd like to see happen here. Yeah, well, on the um, on the uh, kind of advisory uh, organizations that are built as advisors or managers in impact investing. I can say, and I, I wasn't here then, but the people who were here at Heron who really started back, you know, five years before I came, uh, there were very few options for managers and advisors who were built uh, to do impact investing um, work. Uh, one of Heron's early grants with some colleagues from other foundations was to Cambridge Associates, which was a very, you know, standard um, uh, advisory firm and, uh, to help it start a um, impact investing advisory practice, if you will. And they, they have that to this day, and it's grown and, and done well. But alongside the, those early entrants, there are there's a whole crop of built for purpose organizations that are coming in to the to the um, the sector and offering a lot more opportunity for investors I think uh, which is very exciting my my big um, uh, worry I guess is that they need their own kind of investment capital in order for them to grow and in order to have healthy growth uh, as as enterprises themselves and be able to cope with the huge demand for for what they are doing now because it's it's really increasing yes I think that's something neglected sometimes mm -hmm. isn't it yeah, we believe in these organisations and Sasby and and all these and and think that's doing great work, but actually, right. they're, they're funding them themselves. Um, yes, is, and and know. Sasby, I mean, I can I can wax poetic about Sasby, which I I am on the board of. Full disclosure, um, here's you know this is an accounting is destiny kind of kind of situation where if you don't have really good. Um, material accounting from public companies, there's a lot of really not particularly not auditable, uh, completely self-reported, non-standardized data that's going out there and it might be completely valid and might be completely made up. Uh, and so getting those accounting standards straight, getting those data standards really rigorous 
um, will help us realize the the actuality of uh, and the of impact investing among public companies and others where they're they're reporting to investors. Absolutely, absolutely. That's been really, really interesting, Claire. I'm just wondering, looking forward the next uh, three to five years, a reasonable time frame to look at uh, what, what your uh, hopes and aspirations are at the Heron Foundation? Well, it's, uh, it's interesting. We've been, um, we've been working on infrastructure. We've been working on getting outside our walls, being talking with other investors. And I think our, our big push is going to be saying, how do we connect Wall Street to Main Street? How do we get right down into the grassroots of the communities that are, that are left out, uh, that are disconnected, and where the people we want to really serve and help uh, live and, and work or, or are disconnected in some way? And how do we actually make impact investing work at the community and individual level uh, in real time, and that's the that's the challenge. It's a great vision, Clara. Um, thank you so much for taking the time today and joining us and sharing the the great work that you're doing and the insights uh, over on your journey. And I wish you the very best success in the future. Oh well, thanks so much for having me. It's been very fun to talk to you. Thanks, Clara. The Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Echoing Green. Echoing Green drives social progress further, faster, via its Global Social Entrepreneurship Fellowship, now running for 30 years. Echoing Green's new Impact Investment Program aims to bridge the gap between impact investors and social entrepreneurs. To help social entrepreneurs better access finance, to build stronger, more resilient social ventures. You can find out more at echoinggreen.org. Thank you for listening to the Financing Social Entrepreneurs podcast. I hope you found this interview valuable. Please make sure to visit financingsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.